Okay, fine. So what if no is not enough? And this is this is this is what this is really what sold the book to the publisher. They'd never seen anything like this before. It's in, in our utter disdain for yes. Because what's the most famous negotiating book in the world anyway, right? Everybody knows getting to yes, right? Yes is supposed to be what you want to get people to say. Yes is not what you want people to say. This is what you want them to say after the no. Now, that's kind of disappointing, right? Like, that's not special. That doesn't make me feel good. The way yes makes me feel good. I love yes. I got a bad addiction to yes. I'm happy when I hear you. That's right. It's, it's not what it is to you when it comes out of their mouth. It's what it is to them. That's right is what people say when they think that what they've just heard is the total and complete truth. There's two simultaneous things that happen. It triggers a subtle epiphany in people's brains. There's a chemical change with epiphany. They feel better. They feel smarter. They feel clarity. Stephen Covey's advice from way back when, seek first to understand, then be understood. And so we thought, okay, all we got to do is say to somebody, I understand. And then you, then you get to talk, right? Because they're ready to hear you. No. It's the changes show understanding first. Trigger a that's right. Then and only then are they ready to hear you. What, whatever your political, whatever political side of the aisle you're on, I'll give you an example to prove it to you. Last presidential election, the two candidates were on TV engaged in a debate when whichever candidate you loved, when you decided to vote for them, they said something in the debate you thoroughly believed in. You didn't look at the TV and say, you're right. You looked at the TV and you went, that's right. We love to hear it, but we're driving for it. We don't know how... How nervous we make other people and the interesting thing was when I was working on my book one of the writers that I work with said as a hostage negotiator Chris how'd you get hostage takers to say yes the only question you ever asked me that completely stumped me and I just went completely silent I said we didn't it's useless not one single hostage negotiation technique designed to get somebody to say yes not one I will tell you as an aside note also the hostage negotiation teams in Australia, in the United States, and in Hong Kong, and in Cape Town, South Africa, and Tokyo, Japan, and Bogota, Colombia, all use the same skills. The exact same skills. Because they work on human beings. And that's a universal component. Before we were any ethnicity, before we were even gender, we were human beings. And these skills work on human beings. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair, you get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. Get in to say yes. This is what we want to get people to say. That's right. That's right is what you say when you hear something is a complete truth. That's right is when you feel connected to somebody. Now, I will point out that that's, not, that's right is not the same as your right. Your right is a problem. Your right is the biggest fake agreement there is there. Your right is when somebody you're working with is hounding you about something that you don't want to do, and, you, and they won't leave you alone, they won't listen to you, so you look them in the eye and you say, you're right. And they get a big smile, and they walk away. And they leave you alone. And they come back the next day and they start in on you again. And you go, 
you're right. And they leave again. So we tell people that we want to maintain a relationship with. We like them. Well, we have to maintain the relationship. We just want them to shut up and go away. It's code for please shut up. But that's right. On the other hand, is huge. Let me introduce you to a friend of mine. American kidnapped in the Philippines. Another Philippine story. He's got himself in the hands of this guy. Bad to the bone. Straight out of the movies, sociopathic, rape and murder and head chopping terrorist. This guy was always photographed. If you're a terrorist, you like the media. That's why you're in the terrorism business. You want attention. Couldn't get attention as a kid. This is one way to get attention as an adult. He always had the same outfit on. Sunglasses, black bandana, black t-shirt, camo pants, 45 on the side. Thought it made him look dashing. Big ego guy. He's got our American. I am coaching this guy. As the international, as a lead international kidnapper negotiator for the FBI, what I really was was an international negotiation coach. That's how I didn't need to speak the language. I know negotiations, I know human dynamics. I just need to find somebody that's coachable. This guy's coachable. He was a superstar. He also happened to be the head of their special action force, the SAF, their version of Navy SEALs. Very smart guy, understood how to learn, took the coaching. But make no mistake, my negotiator wanted to kill my killer. And he had a little bit of trouble sort of reconciling to this nice approach, this tactical empathy approach, so much so that we're working together late one night, and he's kind of getting it, but he's not quite embracing it entirely because he wants to kill our bad guy. And we're sitting there, and I'm coaching him, and I see a snarl come over his face. Our bad guy's name is Sabaya, and my guy is Benji. And I look at Benji, and I say, I realize I got to get a that's right out of Benji. And I say, you hate Sabaya, don't you? He says, I tell you I do. He is murdered and he is raped. He's cut the heads off of innocent people while they couldn't do anything about it. He's come on our radios while we were bombing his position and said, these mortars are music to my ears. And the only way that he can do that is if he's standing over the body of one of my colleagues. I hate him. And with that, I saw Benji center himself and really fall into line. And he was ready to follow the direction that I was giving him. Now this entire kidnapping, while this is going on, the demand for our American is $10 million. But it's not a ransom demand, because our killer is smarter than that. He wants $10 million in war damages for 500 years of oppression from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans to the atrocities committed by the American general Black Jack Pershing to the violations of the fishing rights to the economic harm from over 500 years from three colonial oppressors. Now you might ask yourself, while wow, those things may have happened, what does that have to do with our American? Doesn't matter. Were you ever in an interaction where somebody was throwing tons of reasons for what they wanted at you that made no sense? Kind of nature of human beings. 
So we're going back and forth and we can't get this $10 million reduced off the table, anything. And one day I said, we're going to press the reset button here. You're going to get Sabaya, our killer. You're going to get him to say, that's right. That's your one goal of the next conversation. You're going to summarize all this nonsense, what he said and how he feels about it. That's the hard part for everybody. You want to take the facts and put your spin on them. We're going to go with their spin, what they say about it. You're going to talk about the 500 years of oppression, the injustices, the economic harm. And you're going to keep talking until Sabaya has no choice but to say that's right. Two days later, my negotiator gets the killer on the phone and says, you're not after ransom for Jeffrey Schilling. You're after war damages because of the economic harm for 500 years of oppression from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans to the atrocities committed by the American imperialist invaders, the injustice of it all, the violation, the economic harm. And he goes on and on and on and on. And then he goes silent. And Sabaya goes silent. And he says, that's right. They sit in silence for a moment. And my guess is let's talk again in a couple of days. Hang up the phone. We go from $10 million to zero in that conversation. That was the last time they ever mentioned money, the entire duration of the kidnapping. Kidnapping lasts a couple of more months. It has some ups and downs. They try to get some other intermediaries involved. Finally, the American walks away. He walks away on Monday, Thursday, the Thursday before Easter. The, the Philippine military finds out that he's out walking around loose in the south of the Philippines. They fly down, they pick him up, they fly him out. The Philippine military claims that they rescued him in a daring rescue operation. Shot all these terrorists, wounded them. They crawled off into the jungle and died. That's why we don't have any bodies to show you. You gotta get him to say that's right. Not your right. They say you're right when you've been pitching and they want you to shut up. Your right is secret code for please stop talking. We sort of joke around in my, com in my company, we say your right is code for F you. <laughs> you know who, the, it's, it's really, I want to maintain a relationship with you, but please, please, I can't take it anymore. Please stop talking. You know who the world's greatest practitioners of your right are? Husbands. The two millimeter shift is that's right. The two millimeter shift is describing to them, and this is what Mike was talking about earlier. Discover what's important to them. How do you know when you've discovered it? When they say that's right. Not you're right. They say you're right when you're pitching. They say that's right when you reiterate it back to them what the world looks like to them. And he also talked about something called the metrics that you never imagined would, would be possible. Those are what we call black swans. There's stuff here that you will never know unless they tell you. And they will only tell you after they've said that's right, and they will then correct you and let you know what matters to them, which is a lot quicker way than laying out a 10-point value proposition when only three of those 10 matter. Because all the time that you spent on the seven of the 10 that don't matter are wasted time. And is what everybody else is doing to them. Does it work on social paths? 
This is an American that was kidnapped in the Philippines, and this is a sociopath that's got him. And this is a raping, killing, murdering, head chopping terrorist, straight out of the movies. And this is the negotiator that I'm coaching. Now, our sociopath is calling for five, uh, $10 million of war damages for 500 years of oppression, from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans. It's a smart move because it makes $10 million sound like not that much money. Fishing harm, fishing rights violation, economic harm, everything that's happened over the last 500 years. Now, I realize right now you're tuning this out because you've never been in a discussion when someone was mad at you and they were bringing up things from the past that didn't have anything to do with you, did you? <laughs> People don't do that. That's just crazy. Only terrorists do that. So we get into this and we go back and forth and finally we got to hit the reset button. This is what we refer to as the birth of the that's right moment. Because I coach my guy to say, today all we're going to do is get the sociopath to say that's right. And you're going to summarize everything that he said and especially the bad stuff about us. That's where you're going to have trouble. Because you only want to talk about the good stuff about you. But from their perspective, the bad stuff about us, and lay it on thick, because in this stuff, this tactical application of empathy, this tactical application of FBI empathy, if you're not laying it on thick, you're not laying it on thick enough. So we get on the phone with this guy. I'm coaching a negotiator, and I, and I coached all over the world. That's what I did. I coached negotiations. And he lays, my guy lays it all out. 500 years of oppression, Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans, atrocities under Blackjack Pershing in the 1900s, violation of the fishing rights, economic harm, injustices, unfair. You're not Filipinos anyway, you're Moros. And you're being oppressed today by a puppet government in the Philippines that's held up by the last colonial power, which is the Americans. And he goes on and on and on. And finally, he gets done, there's a moment of silence, and a sociopath on the other end of the line says, that's right. And in that moment, we went from $10 million to zero. The ransom was never mentioned again through the duration of the kidnapping. It went away. It was just gone. Kidnapping took a couple more twists and turns. A couple months later, the American walks away. Jeff Schilling, the American, just walks away. Local farmer sees him walking down a dirt road. Sees, knows he's got to be Jeffrey Schilling because there ain't that many black Americans walking around the south of the Philippines. Says, you must be Jeffrey Schilling. Says, I am. They fly him back to Manila. The military, they hold a big press conference. President of the Philippines on one side, Secretary of Defense on the other side. Secretary of Defense says, in a daring rescue operation, we have rescued the American Jeffrey Schilling. We shot all these terrorists and they were mortally wounded. They went off into the brush and died. That's why we don't have any bodies to show you. But it was a daring rescue operation. Daring operation. They gave him a ride. <laughs> Two days ago, there was a daring re rescue operation in Newark Airport where I got picked up and driven into the city. It's a daring operation. <laughs> My driver was a daring rescuer. I'm back in the Philippines about three weeks afterwards. Another kidnapping has gotten kicked off, and I kept up, connect up with my guy, and he says, you're not going to believe who called me on the phone. I don't know. The terrorist, the sociopath. He still knows my guy by his undercover name. He's got his undercover number. What do you say? Have you been promoted yet? I don't know what it was he said to me on the phone. I was going to kill the American. 
You're really good. They should promote you. He hangs up. What's he saying in that moment? I felt respected by you. I deal with you again. That's what he was saying. He was telling them that if they had to deal with each other again, he felt respected enough that he would be, he would be willing to deal with them as a peer, peer-to-peer basis. Understand that Terrace got nothing. Nothing. His organization ended up in a shambles as a result of this. And he was still willing to deal with the guy that got the dice right out of him. Everybody you deal with, everybody you deal with, regardless of the outcome, should feel that way when they get done interacting with you. And it takes less time to get there than any of these other approaches. You want to talk about finding out about the other side, find out what's important to them. You want, you want to increase the percentages of tours to people wanting proposals from you or letting you know what they actually need to make it work for them. This is the way that you get that. This is the way that you get that. It's insane. Deal after deal after deal that we're coaching. The pivot points, not just the pivot point, but the leaps forward in the negotiations comes as a result of what we refer to as the that's right moment. So I'm going to tell you about a kidnapping that took place in Haiti. 12-year-old boy gets grabbed. 12-year-old boy is an American citizen. He's a dual national. He's the only American in the family that gets grabbed. Now, a couple of interesting things about this. Interesting to me, anyway. You might not find them interesting. What difference does it make that he's a dual national? Well, here's another thing about the kidnapping business. They really don't like grabbing Americans. No, doesn't every kidnapping industry anywhere in the world, whether it be Haiti, whether it be Iraq, you know, whether it be the Philippines, they want to grab locals. They don't want to grab outsiders, particularly Americans. But wait a minute, aren't, aren't Americans supposed to have a great big giant price tag on them on their head? Shouldn't you want to kidnap Americans? Well, if you're in business, what's one of the last things you want to have happen? What do you hate in business? What you hate is more government regulation. You grab an American, pretty soon Uncle Sam, the U.S. government shows up in your country with politicians, with military people, with law enforcement people, with lawyers, and they start interfering in the local operation. That's more government regulation. You don't grab American citizens because you don't need the American government showing up and telling everybody how to do things. So... The vast majority of the kidnappings are worked internationally. When an American was taken, the bad guys didn't even know they had an American, which is the case when they grabbed this 12-year-old boy. Now, they have grabbed this 12-year-old boy in a carjacking, which is an interesting business model. You know, carjack a car with more than one person and let one of those people go. They notify the family right away. There's all sorts of advantages to this, this, this model of kidnapping, not the least of which is what happens if you grab the one person in that family that nobody likes you got a car you're still gonna get paid this is you got an asset you're gonna you're gonna liquidate the asset this is a business transaction where you got uh, you get you guaranteed to at least get something out of it that's why the great thing about the business model in haiti at the time so 12 year old boys have been grabbed he's the only american citizen in his family his father's not an american citizen but he goes to the U.S. government and says, my son's an American citizen. you got to help us. And they tell him, 
the FBI is going to be there to help you. Now, I don't know what would go through your mind if you were told that the FBI was going to be there to help you. Probably, maybe about 15 minutes later, you might hear a knock at the front door, and these guys would be there. Maybe they'd even have on FBI hats to prove that they were FBI agents. Instead, about 15 minutes after this father's told the FBI he's going to be there to help him, he gets a call from some guy named Chris Voss, who says he's in Washington, D.C. And he literally says to me on the phone, you're in Washington, D.C. How are you going to help me? Now, put yourself in my place. What would you say? Put yourself in my place. How long before this father hangs up the phone? Now, put yourself in your place. Isn't this exactly what everybody that you deal with on behalf of Zoom is saying to themselves about you? How are you going to help me? Do you have any idea what my challenges are? How are you going to help me? How long do you have before one of your customers, one of your clients hangs up the phone? If not literally, figuratively. How long did I have with this father? How long do you have on a daily basis? If you check the data, how long do you have to make a first impression? Which, by the way, I will tell you is the second most important impression. I'm going to spend some time on first impressions over the coming moments. And it's the second most important impression. What's the most important impression? The last impression. The last impression is the lasting impression. Let's go back to the first impression. In that 7 to 10 second window that you have, what do you have to establish? Seven to ten seconds. Do you know? Trust. Trust and competence. Not confidence. Competence. Seven to ten seconds. And the difference between competence and confidence, because there's a lot of coaching to be confident. A lot of people get a, think they get a long way with confidence. Would you rather have a confident plumber or a competent plumber? Trust and confidence. All right, cool. You say to yourself, right, I'm willing to accept that. Seven to ten seconds seems like a narrow window. How do I establish that? Your resume correlates loosely with whether or not you know what you're doing. You know this now. Your company's capabilities listed out in a value proposition correlate loosely with whether or not someone can trust you to solve their problems. If it correlated strongly, you guys wouldn't even need to talk to clients. You just slide your resume across the table, email them your resume, email them your list of capabilities, and they look at your resume and go like, oh, this person knows what they're talking about. Wow, these capabilities look good. Deal. Where can we sign? No, that doesn't happen. 
the human factor comes into play. Seven to ten seconds. So how did I establish that with this father instead of trotting out my resume? Because I'd done it wrong before. Here's what I said to this father. All right, Haitian kidnappers are not killing kidnapped victims these days. I realize that's really stupid because they kill each other at the drop of a hat. But for whatever reason, they're not killing kidnapped victims. Now, today, it's Thursday. And Haitian kidnappers love the party on Saturday night. If you say the things that I want you to say, when I want you to say them, we will have you sent out late Friday, early Saturday morning. He said to me, tell me what you want me to do. And we had it sent out Saturday morning. So what did I do? And what more importantly, what did I not do? Here's what I did do. Here's what you're up against. I outlined to him that I understood his challenges by telling him what they are. You're going to get one or two responses when you do that. And you need to do that to your clients, with your clients. They're either going to say that's right or they're going to correct you. That's right is when someone says when they feel you get it. You get it. They don't say you're right. They say, that's right. When you get it, when you get it so much that it either creates an epiphany in them or gives them a feeling of relief because you get it so much. And what happens when you begin to establish trust-based influence, when they say, that's right, each and every time somebody says, that's right to you, they get a hit of oxytocin, which is a neurochemical, which is a bonding drug. Bottom right-hand corner of your screen. Oxytocin is what parents feel when they lay their eyes on their child for the first time. Probably by now you're like, all right, I get it. Oxytocin is a good thing. But I don't want them to correct me because I would be embarrassed. That's what's going to hold you back. When you outline somebody's challenges, you're horrified. Horrified at making a mistake and getting corrected. When someone corrects you, they're stepping to your side. It's such a powerful technique because people love correction. I think Maya Angelou said, people don't remember what you say. They remember how you made them feel. When someone corrects you, they feel good. They want more of it. They've come around the table and they put their arm around you and they're stepping to your side. So for someone that has lost maybe control or not, not control. They, they've had a bad conversation. They got on the phone with someone. They're negotiating, I don't know, a, a deal where they're doing, let's say it's 3000 a month or $5,000 a month, right? It's a deal for a year. It's worth 60 grand in all. Um, and they've had, a, they've had a bad conversation and they can't get the person to call them back or they haven't been able to. What's the next steps? Are you following up, following up, follow up, follow up, like, you know, Grant Cardone style, or are you letting it go and moving on to the next one? Like what's, what's your technique for, all right, the, that conversation didn't go well. What's next? All right. So I value my time. You know, um, if, if you're too hard for me to get to, I'm probably not going to continue the follow up. However, my next follow up is going to be a two pronged approach. I'm going to send you a one-line message. It's going to go in an email or it's going to go in a text. 
and it's going to be one line and one line only. And I'm going to say, have you given up on doing business with me? Or have you given up on this, this sale or whatever it is? Have you, and I have sent that message out. Have you given up on X? Now, 999 times out of 1,000, which is pretty good batting average, <laughs> I'm going to get a response back somewhere between 3 and 30 minutes from sending that out. And it has to go out like that word for word. Hmm. I had a woman once said to me, I sent that text out and it didn't work. And I'm like, all right, cool, interesting, possible. Tell me word for word what you sent out. And she said, yeah, well, I thought that sounded a little harsh, you know. And so instead of saying, have you given up on doing business with me, I sent out a, lot, a message that said, should we give up on having lunch together so we can discuss the process? And I'm like, I wouldn't answer that either. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and you got to understand where there is a, you got to be careful with, of the we crap. Your boss comes to you and said, hey, look, we got a problem. Is that what the boss means? Yeah. <laughs> no. He's like, you got a problem. <laughs> you have a problem. <laughs> and so we disguise, you know, we use we as a disguiser for you all the time. It's just, it's so bad. So the, the one line is, have you given up on doing business with me? Word for word. Now, you're going to get a response in anywhere from three to 30 minutes. I'm not kidding. But now... What do you do to follow up? They haven't been listened to. They're not talking to you because you've shown them that you don't listen to them. So when you get them back on the phone, what you have to do is summarize a perspective from their situation. Mm -hmm. Do not repeat your pitch. <laughs> do not repeat what caused them to go dark in the first place. Sounds summarize. so logical, but man, so many people do that. Everybody does it. <laughs> You know, su summarize it from their perspective and throw in, you know, you're probably having a hard time with this. You probably think I'm not paying attention to you. You got to especially summarize the stuff that you don't like. I mean, I would ask anybody listening to this also take a look at my TED talk because that's when I say, I must say it eight times. Summarize the stuff you don't like. Summarize the stuff from their perspective. Meaning what? What does that look like? All right, what that looks like is they're not getting back to you because they don't feel listened to. So you say you're probably not getting back to me because you don't feel listened to. You probably, you know, they're not getting back to you because the process is not moving them forward. You say, you know what, this process probably hasn't moved you forward at all. You're probably asking yourself why you're talking to me at all because that is, in fact, what's going on. You got to get the voice in their head to shut up. You don't get the voice in their head to shut up by contradicting it. You get the voice in their head to shut up by articulating what it's saying. Mm. And now suddenly you resonate with the voice in their head. And you keep at this until they say to you, that's right. Ah, so if you get it wrong, it's not over. You just keep saying, okay, well, then maybe this. Well, the great thing is if you're actually trying to solve it or articulate it from their perspective, if you get it wrong, they're going to go, no, 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 that's not it. This is what it is. They'll correct you. Uh, mm. Now, that, co being corrected is one of the ideal places on a planet to be because people love to correct, and when they correct, they tell you the truth. I, I, I want you to repeat that one more time for the audience to hear because I don't think very many people understand that. So one more time for the audience in the back. 
being corrected is one of the ideal places on the planet to be. Mm. The other side loves it, which means now they're in an interaction with you that they love, mm. which bodes well for future interactions. Mm. And when they correct, they tell you the truth. So to the people out there that are like, oh man, if I feel corrected, I feel like they think that I'm not credible or that, that I don't know what I'm talking about and therefore they're going to see me as less and not want to do business with me. What would you say to that? You're leaving money on the table. Mm. You are killing yourself. You are, you know, it's an emotional intelligence move, one of the smartest moves on the planet. And be, your fear is getting in your way. And your fear is stopping you from living in a bigger house. Mm. I love that. I love that. So you said it was a two-pronged approach. And maybe we covered the second one already. But the first one was that text or that email, one line. What was part two of that? Yeah, get a that's right out of them. Part one no, is to get right. a no out of them. Part two is to get a that's right out of them. You get a that's right out of them. Now, your next move is, is exactly this. I'm going to do it perfectly. Dead freaking silence. Shut the front door. Shut up. <laughs> Let him fill the void. So because it, if they reply back, you just don't reply. When, when you get a that's right out of them, they will never be more inclined towards you than they are in that moment. Mm. The secret of negotiation is letting the other side have your way. At that point in time, let them give you the deal. Let them outline it for you. Now, in the extremely unlikely event that they don't, but you have to give them a chance to do so, count 1,000s in your set, you know, one 1,000, two 1,000. If you get to 10, and only if you get to 10, then you say, how would you like to proceed? And, and that's if you're on, like, on the phone with them, not via email. Exactly. I mean, you, um, it's hard to get a that's right out of somebody via email. Emails are bad moves. Emails are playing chess, and you don't want to make seven chess moves in one email. Mm -hmm. So this is on the phone in person. So you get out. Okay. All right. Get a that's right out of them verbally. Shut the front door. If you count to 10, and you will not, you're, you will get to three, and they'll start talking again. But that's in the event, you got to wait to 10, very deferentially, you hit him with the magic H question, how would you like to proceed? How would you like to proceed? Now you know the roadmap and you know the best possible roadmap. If it doesn't work for you, you just made yourself smarter and you move on. An American overseas doing something stupid. This is a sociopath that has him. The question I often get or the one that I like to throw out is, does empathy work on sociopaths? Well, this guy is a sociopath. He's got on his uniform, sunglasses, black bandana, black t-shirt, camel pants, 45 strapped to his side, 45 caliber automatic handgun strapped to his side of his camouflage pants. He thinks this makes him look daring and dashing. He doesn't have on sunglasses because it's sunny in the south of the Philippines. It is, but he's got them on because he thinks it makes him look more photogenic. And this is the negotiator that I'm coaching. Now, we go through the negotiation for a period of months. The terrorist is not asking for ransom for the release of the American. He's asking for war damages for 500 years of oppression in the south of the Philippines, from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans. 
Now, right now you're saying like, well, this is a one reason why hostage negotiation doesn't apply to me. Because I was never in a negotiation where the other side were bringing up things from the past that had nothing to do with me, that occurred to them before I ever showed up. In my business negotiations, people don't react like that. They don't bring baggage to the table. Oh, wait a minute. That happens at every negotiation. People bring their history of experience to the table, even history I had nothing to do with. So we finally decide after four months of a stalemate that we're going to get a that's right out of the terrorist. So I coach my negotiator, today you get a that's right. And he gets a terrorist on the phone, he says, you know, you're not asking for ransom for the American, you're asking for war damages for 500 years of oppression. And he goes on at length over the injustices that occurred and the things that the other side had experienced. It had nothing to do with the Americans or the American being held, but what they had experienced. And after going on at length over the other side's experience, he goes silent. He doesn't offer an argument in return. He just goes silent. And the kidnapper on the other end of the phone says, that's right. He summarizes the other side's facts. Not our facts, but their facts. And how they felt about the facts. And a kidnapper says, that's right. And the ransom demand goes away. It just goes away. Money is never mentioned again in the kidnapping. It takes several more twists and turns. And on Monday, Thursday, on the Thursday before Easter, the hostage walks away. The military flew down and picked them up. They held a big press conference in Manila announcing the rescue. We flew Schilling back, the American back to the United States. And I was back in the Philippines a couple of weeks later. I connected back up with the negotiator that I had coached. And he said, you're not going to believe who called me on the phone. I said, I don't know who called you on the phone. The sociopathic terrorist. What did he say? He said, have you been promoted yet? I don't know what it was that you said to me on the phone. I was going to kill the American. You're really good at what you should do. What you do, they should promote you. This is what the demonstration of understanding gets, ladies and gentlemen. Because in that moment, the person who lost everything called the person on the phone responsible for it to congratulate him and let him know that he was still willing to talk to him, despite everything that happened. He was still willing to talk and collaborate should they talk again. Everybody that you interact with should always be willing to talk with you because your brand is empathy. Your brand is understanding. That's what That's Right does when you begin to apply this to all of your interactions. People will always be willing to talk with you. Your brand is empathy. Your best self is relayed to others through the use of empathy. Um, one of the other things uh, that I've that you learn a lot in sales trainings, I've, I've been in a number of them that talk about this, is you want to get somebody to say yes. And the more times you can get them to say yes, the more likely they're going to agree to something. And, and you're right. completely the opposite. You're looking for people to say no. Um, so uh, can, can you kind of explain why you would want people to say no to you and, and what's going on in that situation? Yeah, well, you know, the problem with this, this the yes momentum or momentum selling is nearly everybody as you learned it, including 
people that are given bad deals, exploiting people, hurt, hurting people with yes. Now, I think at some point in time, every human being is susceptible to this. Very few of us haven't had a time when we've been stung by it. As a matter of fact, I would contend everybody's been stung by this once. I still got in my desk a coupon book that I bought in my early 20s for $25. It was supposed to give me $25,000 in discounts. I, I couldn't figure out how to use any of those coupons. <laughs> I still got the coupon book. I look back on it as like, would you like to have a discount on, on stuff that you buy every day? You know, would you like to give 25% off on uh, your next major purchase? You know, they hit me with three yeses. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I got stuck. It's being yes battered. It's one of the reasons why there are three kind of yeses. Confirmation, commitment, and counterfeit. Because people have been stung so many times by this yes momentum nonsense that they've gotten used to giving a counterfeit yes just to try to feel the other side out. So... You eliminate this because if you're dealing with somebody who's been yes battered, then the minute you try to get them to say yes, you trigger an instinctive memory in them of the person that cheated them. And you're now engaging in behavior in a person that cheated them, which is a guaranteed erosion of the relationship. Getting out of yes entirely is the first move. And then the crazy thing is, Every human being on earth has been taught whenever they, whenever they say no, not when they hear no. That's a big difference. The difference between saying it and hearing it. What happens when you say no? You protected yourself from harm. There was some unknown harm out there. There was some unknown trap, some unknown hook. When you said no, you protected yourself. And you're feeling controlled as well a little bit. You know, exactly. you almost feel as though, like, okay, I'm... Um, I'm in control of this situation. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of a feeling do I want to foster in you for us to collaborate? I want you to feel safe and in control. Every time I get you to say no, you feel safe and in control. You're more likely to listen to me. You're less likely to have your guard up. You're more likely to tell me the actual obstacles. So instead of saying, like, does this look like a good deal to you? I'll say, does this look like a bad deal? Now, if, the, if I say, does this look like a good deal and you need more stuff to make the deal, I'm going to want you to say, yes, it looks like a good deal, but here's what I need. But because you're yes battered, you won't say that at all. But if I say, does this look like a bad deal, you'll say, no, it's not a bad deal, but here's what I need. And bang, you just outlined to me what you need to make the deal. Now I know either we can make it or not, but I triggered it by getting you to say no. And, and then when you when you flip that around you, you also talk about if somebody then does say yes right. is is this sort of rule of three where you kind of ask them to, to to clarify that statement so it's so it's not a counterfeit yes so they're actually right. you, you're really checking that so what, what just just talk talk me through that in a bit more detail well if you say yes i'll probably say i'll probably actually go yes and you go yeah uh, it, it's just, that's a mirror it's designed to trigger you to elaborate to let you know that I heard you I put an upward inflection in it just to say I want to make sure clarification now you may just come back with yes again which is entirely possible because I've gotten you to repeat the yes now I'm trying to get you to repeat more than the yes 
I really need the more. And the mirror is the first tool that I'm going to use. So if, if I don't get any more out of you, I'll hit you with a label. So it seems like this is a good deal for you. Just an observational statement, label design to get more. You're probably going to say a couple more words. And it, yeah, it's a good deal for me. Now I'm going to start hearing some tone of your voice because I need to know if there are reservations. The last thing I'm going to do, if you've given me two solid yeses, I'm going to say, okay, so we've talked about this up to now. I'm going to basically paraphrase what we just said. You know, I said this. You said, yeah. I asked you a couple times if this was a good deal and it's worked for you. You, you, uh, you responded positively both times. We are free to proceed. Now, even if you're still giving me the counterfeit, I've now created a moment in time where I really drilled in on the yes, not in a manipulative way, giving you the feeling like you can get out of this if you want to, which preserves your autonomy, which actually increases your likelihood of doing it. It also puts me in a position where if you don't perform, I say, look, last Thursday at 12 o'clock noon, I asked you three times if this worked for you, and three times you told me it did. And now that it's not working, when you told me three times that it did, what did you want me to hear? Leaves me in a perfect position to deal with this if it goes bad. Right. And, and following on from that then, if, if someone says you're right, you, 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 you don't <laughs> want them to say, yeah, you're right, Chris. Um, uh, you, you want them to say that's right. What, how, what, is, what happens? What's the difference between you're right, Chris, and yeah, that's right? Yeah, this is another one of those when, you know, whether we're hearing it or whether we're saying it, two different worlds. Like, we love to hear you right. Makes us happy. We get satisfied. What happens when we hear it and we hear you right and we get satisfied? We get a big happy smile on our face and we stop talking because we're right. What are you doing when you're saying you're right? Colleague, family member, significant other, somebody you either want to or have to preserve the relationship with who will just not leave you alone on something you have no intention to go along with. You look them in the eye and you go, you're right. And they shut up and they stop talking. <laughs> there ain't a human being on earth that is not using this device to get somebody to shut up. Yet we don't imagine that if we use it to get people to shut up and leave us alone, that someone would do it to us. When in fact, we probably did it three times this week. We probably had it done to us three times this week. You're in so much trouble if somebody looks at you and says, you're right, because they're politely asking you to shut up. Now, the two millimeter shift of that's right is what somebody says when you have demonstrated to them that you get it, that you get them. And it's, it's this involuntary change in the response. When someone says something to you that you completely agree with, and that them uttering it either gave you an insight or made you feel relieved because of an internal pressure. You go, that's right. That's what people say when they're all in on what they just heard. And the crazy thing about that is it's a bonding moment. They mm -hmm. bond to you. And it's an epiphany moment which triggers action in favor of you. And that's why so many people that learn the black swan method 
all they do is get that bat's rights out of the other side, and the other side gives them their deal. And how often does it happen? How often does it have to happen? 